by knowing that I'm going to finish the trail at the next day really allowed me to enjoy that day. And I had an amazing hiking day. One of those days that you just, everything looks amazing. The, the rocks are shining and it was just such a lovely day of hiking. Episode 370. Today we talk about hiking in the Andes and the Scottish Highlands with Gilad Nakmani. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. This episode is brought to you in part by Bissell Bark Bath, the easier way to bathe your dog indoors. For more information, go to Bissell slash Adventure Sports and be sure to use the coupon code Adventure Sports when you get a bark bath for your dog. Hey friends, Kurt here. Today we are going to be talking about hiking, but not just any hiking. We're going to talk about hiking in the Andes as well as hiking on the Cape Raft Trail in Scotland. Our guest today is Gilad Nachmani. And Gilad was originally from Israel. He has been in a lot of places. We'll, we'll let him tell about that, but places including the UK and Australia. Now he calls Portland, Oregon home. And he also owns an outdoor company that has a couple of really unique products that he designed specifically for kind of a niche needs in the outdoors industry. So we'll be talking about those toward the end of the show as well. But this is going to be a great show about hiking and trekking and Gilad, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. So Gilad, give us your background a little bit, first of all. Um, born in Israel, and then what? Yes. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Israel, um, kind of in Israel of the 80s and 90s, which is, for Americans, means the 60s and 70s. Um, kind of really laid-back country, and went all the way up to my time in the military, done my three years of service, and then started traveling. Um, my girlfriend at the time really wanted to visit New Zealand, and I went with her because I haven't had anything interesting to do back back when we finished the army. And I got the bug of seeing the world and hiking and backpacking specifically, and came back from eight months in Australia and New Zealand, started working for an outdoor shop um, in Jerusalem in Israel and really, really, really got hooked up with the idea of gear and technical gear and more extreme backpacking. I became a gearhead. (laughs) And since then, I'm, I'm, I'm completely hooked with gear. So the show is really not about Israel today, but I would be, I would be wrong if I didn't get more details because I know a lot of people have not been there, and they're probably curious yep. about what it was like to grow up there. Um, it was it was very interesting. There's probably until the mid-90s, I'd say. It was a very, very, very free, open place. I spent my time outdoors, not because I went backpacking or my parents took me hiking or anything like that. It's just because you were outdoors. There was nothing really else to do. And this is why I said it's probably closer to the 60s and 70s in the U.S. where mm. kids were just spending their time in the streets. And I used to go to my best friend's house in the kibbutz, which was about five orchard, orchards, orchards down the street. 
you just walk a couple of kilometers to the house through fruit and and the fields and that's it so very much a, an outdoors experience growing up and then slowly i got into a bit of guidance and helping uh younger kids go outdoors more often i started counseling and doing some uh tour guiding and just again this outdoors experience stayed as it is just going out it was never about the gear or anything organized we just took a bag and some canned food and went to sleep somewhere nice you know i don't want to get into the politics of everything but i would like to hear from your perspective you know in the united states the news that we get um from that mm-hmm. side of the world is all about palestinian conflicts and and terrorism yes. and things like that and i have a suspicion that when you're actually living and growing up in israel that that's not the only thing that's going on so what was it like from that respect well first of all real people live there so yes the the whole conflict is always there. But at the end of the day, people wake up and go to work and come back and raise kids and do the same boring things that they do everywhere else. Um, but the politics is a big part of it. It's very demanding. I think over the years it became, becomes more and more extreme in how much it takes part in everyone's life. Uh, I personally was very political for a while just before I joined the army. And for me, it just became a boiling point. It was too political. I personally was too involved, um, and it became too much. And I've learned from traveling that I can live a life that is not political. Probably why it was so charming all of a sudden. Mm. Um, it it is involving. It's a, you're very involved in what's going on, whether you like it or not. But it is an amazing place to visit. It's tiny. It's packed full with both nature and culture. It's such a tiny place. It takes about six hours to drive the length of Israel. Wow. And you get everything. You start from the top of the Hermon, which you get snow most of the year, about eight months of the year. And then you can drive all the way down to the Red Sea in six hours. And it's great. And in between, you have the oldest city in the world, pretty much. It's still operational. And you get a desert and you get fields and... You get springs and hot springs and just pretty much everything within that small stretch of road. So to go visiting, it's a very rewarding place because there's so much in such a little place. Unlike most countries, which you have to travel ages to get to every single thing. Right. Well, most people that grow up in a location kind of take it for granted. And then later in life, they go, wait, I grew up in a really cool place. (laughs) Was that your experience? Um, no, actually, I always, always loved exploring Israel. I've done so in, when I was a teenager, I actually hitchhiked most of the country at some point. I just went everywhere from finding hidden streams in the Golan Heights. And I went to see flash floods in, in the desert and just sleeping outdoors everywhere I could or visiting friends everywhere. I had friends all over the country. Um, I, I personally always enjoyed seeing every part of the country or as much as of as much of it as I could. Um, and, and this is why I think I have a lot of fond memories of the country. That's neat. One last question on that, and then we'll move on. You know, the media sure. would have us think based on all the reports that we get that it's not safe to go to many places around the world, but areas of Israel <laughs> sometimes are presented that way. How would you, uh, mm-hmm. how would you advise people? Um, 
I'll say that I've been in streets in London that felt substantially less safe than most places in Israel. Mm. They are they are always dangerous areas. They but they're probably in the bigger cities rather than the more rural areas. Um, just keep your head on and and look around. But as a whole, as a country, it's pretty safe. Probably less safe to drive on the road than go and visit. You know, I, I often hear a report of someone that got into trouble in a foreign country. You know, call it country X, Y, Z. It really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then people start saying, oh, you heard what happened. I don't think people should go there. It's not safe. And I say, well, you know, if you get drunk and you walk through the bad part of town at 2 a.m., that might happen to you here, too. <laughs> you know? Yes. That's asking for trouble, no matter where. <laughs> exactly. If you use a little bit of wisdom and keep your, your head screwed on straight, then most places around the globe are are relatively safe and many of them much safer than perhaps where we live. So Yes. Yes. There are parts of Portland that I won't go to. <laughs> on the other hand. And <laughs> Portland is an amazingly safe place. Sure. Yeah, you bet. Well that's a lot of fun. So you started traveling, you did New Zealand and Australia. Eventually you found yes. yourself in the Andes. Now how did that how'd that come around? Um so as I said, I came back from New Zealand and Australia and got the gear bug and started working in a store, in an outdoor store. And I've done that for about seven seven months and gathered as much information and skills and gear as I could um, on the meager salary of a, of a short, store clerk. And then went out to South America with a good friend of mine, which ended up marrying my best friend. So it was a, an interesting combination. Mm. And I took him for his pre-bachelor party for a month in Argentina. And then he went back home based on my friend's uh, demand that he needs to be home because he's going to get married soon. <laughs> and, that matters. Yes, yes. Um, which was also the, the time frame I had for my trip because I had to be back for their wedding. Um, and when he when we started traveling together, we done the more traditional buses and hitchhiking and seeing part of the touristy places and we got to an area that's called um the it's in chile it's called the tres lagos it's kind of a small national park there and i really wanted to go hiking there because we heard great great reviews and opinions from people who've been there and i've dragged him up with me and he hated it. He's a big guy. He's a bit fitter now, but he's a big guy, quite heavy, and he wasn't in the mood of dragging himself three days up a mountain to see three lakes and then go back. Right. So we've done that trip, went back, and I wanted to go on another hike, and he said, no way. I'm I'm staying in the hostel. You go and do whatever you want. So I did. I went hiking and done a trail. It's more of a route called the Via Rica Traverse, goes from the Via Rica volcano in Chile all the way to Mount Lenin, which is another volcano. There's about 250 kilometers between them. And I've done that solo. It's the first time that I fully went hiking by myself. And it was the best experience I've ever done. I knew nothing of what to do. I done all the mistakes possible from forgetting to filter my water to 
not bringing enough food, but it was <laughs> so liberating. Well, that's quite a distance. Yes, I've done probably 70 of that hiking, and then I went down to the road, hitchhiked a bit, just because there's a middle section that's quite long and it's just forested, and I lost patience. I wanted to see the mountains. So I hitchhiked probably about 100 kilometers further on, or 120, and then done some more hiking up to Mount Lenin, where I found a, the most random guy that was doing snowshoeing up the mountain. And he said, how about you join me? And I did. And I snowshoed the first time. He, there was a company there that had a few snowshoes, so I rented snowshoes. And I've climbed a mountain with this guy that I've just met. Nice. For three days. And it was another amazing introduction because I haven't even seen snow on a regular basis before from right. Israel. There's no snow. And it... And I've spent three days in the snow all of a sudden, and just the whole experience of letting go, accepting the timing, and just have a different pace instead of trying to reach the next place. I was just there. Mm, I love that. You know, so many people, when they travel, they pre plan all their hotels and where they're going to be at what time, and they get stuck in a schedule. And, and then if they stumble into something that looks really, really exciting, like climbing Mount Lennon, right? Then yes. they're they're kind of in a in a bind because they have a schedule to stick to. I love the the free travel that you're talking about, where you can go places yes. and just kind of follow your nose and and take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Right? Mm -hmm. It was it was so great, and it just completely opened my eyes to the idea of that sense of freedom. So when we continued traveling together for another couple of weeks, and when he left, I knew this is what I'm going to do. Just keep on hiking or traveling this way and hike wherever I can. And I did. I, we parted ways. So we traveled a bit longer, went down to uh, the Wywash area. Uh, sorry, not the Wywash. The, oh, um, Torres del Paine. I reached Firewash later on. Uh, Torres del Paine, we've done some hiking together. He'd done part of the W with me. And again, he had enough and he went back to the hostel. And then I said, you know what? I'm here. I might as well do the whole thing. So I've started, went back to the beginning and done the full loop by myself. And again, this sense of freedom was just great. And from then on, I just kept on looking for more and more hikes. Every time I got close to the Andes, uh, ended up hiking, uh, doing the full whitewash route when they were just starting to introduce the fact that you're not allowed to hike by yourself in that area. Mm. That's up in Peru. So I think by now you can't really do what I've done. Just take the local bus and start hiking and pay a couple of pesos as you pass through villages. But I could do that. And I've done that for almost two weeks, just randomly bumbling through that national national park of the Wywash. Nice. Exploring some random peaks and sleeping at 5,000 meters above sea level for the first time. You know, it's about 15,000, uh, which was a very interesting experience that I recommend acclimatizing to better than I did. <laughs> did you get pretty sick? Um, that night I did. I, I've learned since that the best way to deal with acclimatizing is to hike at least a thousand a thousand meters higher than where you're going to sleep 
So if you climb to 5,000 and then you sleep at 4,000, you feel just fine. And then the day after, you can add another 500 or 1,000 meters of height to that next section of climb and sleep. And I found that that works at least very well for me in terms of acclimatizing quickly. So first day, you climb about 2,000, sleep at 1,000. The day after, climb to 3,000, sleep at 2,000. And then I found that it's very easy for me to adjust that way. So kind of deprive my body and then have uh, a less comfortable sleep. But it allows me to acclimatize quite quickly. Yeah, there is a lot of wisdom in that. That's that's probably a really good approach. It's just it was trial and error. I probably got myself sick enough times to realize that. <laughs> so tell us the story of that night. Oh, I I hiked a lot. It was a long day. Uh, I think it was next to it was the south side of um, Devil Mountain, just on the west side of Waiwash. And I've it was towards the end of my trip, and I thought I'm just fine and. I've acclimatized and I've been in 5,000, 6,000 meters often enough, but I haven't slept that high. And I went up and it was cold. I was sleeping just below the snow line. It was summer, but it was still very snowy. And I, it was just such a long day and I finished the pass and I told myself that I should probably keep on going and get a bit lower, but I was just too tired. So I pitched my tent and lay down. I don't think I even bothered much with, with dinner. Not that I have had much food at the time, but whatever I had, probably kind of improvised something. And I just, I do remember waking up constantly, just feeling dizzy. And and at first light, I just packed up and went down and had a nap, probably about a thousand meters lower on the other side of the pass, just recovering for the day. But it was just, it's like feeling a bit overhang for a whole night. Yeah. Yeah. I now, I compare it to feeling car sick, you know, you feel that way. Yeah. But there's a there's a real mm-hmm. danger there, especially if you're alone because some people do develop yes. cerebral edema and, and that can be incapacitating. Or even pulmonary edema. Yes, <laughs> you know, so I probably retroactively I would say never do that. But most of my adventures include something that I look back and say I should not have done that, and no one else should either. So, isn't that, that how we learn? One of those things. <laughs> yes, yes. Now I know how to approach altitude sickness much better. Much better. I know how to assess peaks better, and where my limits lay. What an amazing life experience to be in such amazing places and and to do those things. Overall, how would you kind of describe the Andes? If people are curious about going down there to experience them, what are they going to experience? I think they're vast. I, the, the strongest memory I have is, is the sheer size of everything because the mountains are really, really big. I've, I've never traveled in Nepal, so I would guess you get the same experience there. But for me, it felt that the mountains were always big and just open and inviting at the same time um and also they're very secluded both if you're traveling and uh, when you're hiking you by yourself there are are no hider hikers uh, most of the time but also when you reach communities they're just so in the middle of nowhere 
I've done part of the back hike of the Andes Trail. And I've reached a family. They were just gathering or getting ready to do the, the corn harvest. And they had maybe an acre of corn. And I was there, and I'm about twice their size. And I offered to help, and they offered me dinner. So I've picked corn in some nowhere in the Andes with a family, and they fed me dinner. And it's just this kind of hospitality that I haven't encountered anywhere else since. Because it's, it's just, it's, it's, it hasn't caught up with the rest of the world. So it has this more slowed, slow down, laid back, nature tuned feeling compared to most places. Wow. And isn't that why we go on an adventure in the first place? <laughs> to slow exactly. down. I definitely found it. Let's move on to what has become more of a recent passion for you, because I want to hear about that, too. And and this is, you know, we're going from the extremes of South America now to Scotland, to the Scottish Highlands, <laughs> way up in, <laughs> in the northern part of, of the British Isles. So tell us about that. What What is that all about? Well, I've started to, as as you probably noticed, I like to find the less standard and more hard ways to do things. There are great hikes in the British Isles, and I had to find the one trail that is not actually a trail, but a route. So I looked into that because I really want to try the most challenging trail I can find in the UK. And... I found this trail that or route that runs from Fort William in the southern part of the Scottish Highlands, and it goes all the way up to to Cape Wrath. It's a tiny peninsula, the Cape Wrath, and I got really intrigued. Started looking into it, found that there's very little information about it, and that got me even more intrigued. And in 2015. Well, my original plan was to hike it in 2014, and then I had a daughter, which scrambled all my plans and threw them out the window, and I've postponed my plans for 2015, and in 2015 went hiking it, and it's between 210 to 250 miles of Scottish remoteness. Anyone haven't ever been to, to Scotland, it feels that you're always remote. Even if you in a city, it feels remote. Hmm. And yes, it's just something quite unique about Scotland. I have not found that anywhere else. That you always feel remote, no matter where you are. I, it's either the weather or just the way the mountains are set. But you can be in a village, in the middle of a village, and it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere just as much. And the whole route feels that way. And I got completely hooked and became obsessed with it even more. So this is the Cape Wrath Trail. That is the Cape Wrath Trail, exactly. I probably should have started with that. After I've done it in 2015, I got even more intrigued, and I've managed to do that in 10 days, which at the time, I think it was probably not the fastest known time, but it was the fastest recorded time. Um, And I've done it kind of part sufficient i was picking up i've I've sent food supplies in advance i sent one food supply in advance and um 
at the same year that I've done my trek, they've announced that it's going to be a an, an adventure race of the Cape Roth um, Ultra Ultra Adventure, and I got very intrigued and decided to try and beat it myself that timing. So I've set the following year to try and do that in eight days, which is the time they set for the adventure race, and try and do the hike again 2016 and didn't manage to do so so now i'm walking around with a strong feeling that i have a an unfinished business in scotland <laughs> so you get to go back again it sounds like a place that you really exactly. like though it is it is it's it, it's so amazingly again it's that remoteness i can't really explain unless you've been there because it's quite uniquely scottish i've been to areas that have been remote and it's not that the weather is that extreme or that the distances are very big. It's just the feeling that you get from the combination of the distances they do have and how the wind is so pounding all the time and relentless and almost trying to, trying to kick you out. And it's so hostile feeling that you have to be there. Mm. Yeah, I can see how that could kind of get under your skin and make you want to they want you to come back and experience it all over again. So uh, you're doing this during what time of the year? Um, I've done it, the first time I've done it in May, and the second time I've done it in April, which are theoretically the best time. So April, May is the best time to do that, that specific route because you still have a bit of snow and it's before the very warm winds are coming in. To So you have less participation precipitation. And before we're getting into the dry season and that midge season in Scotland. I've heard the midges are, there can be horrible. Yes. They, if you've been to New Zealand, they are as evil as the sandflies that you get in southern New Zealand. They're relentless and they can be painful and they come in huge swarms. It almost looks like a big black cloud coming at face value to you. Mm. At face level, and it's just oh, they won't let you be. So, I recommend staying away from Scotland during the dry season and June to August. And then there's another short period, October, kind of September, October, that some people will try and do that route, even though it can it can be drier and you might get some snow, snowfall in the higher passes. So uh, spring, fall, not so much summer. Spring, fall, no. And stay away from winter. Scottish winter is as bad as it comes. You know, we interviewed a fellow who his passion was winter mountaineering in Scotland. Of course, he was from Scotland. But he described (laughs) things. Scottish people are made for it. (laughs) (laughs) He described things like uh, trying to orienteer in complete whiteout for, you know, 12 hours at a time. We don't even know where you are and which direction is up from down because of the snowstorms and the fog and the moisture. And, Mm -hmm. and he, he shared how it was very wet. It's not like a dry snow, you know, it's, it's like you just, you're getting clobbered by it and soaked and, Oh, just sounds, uh, it sounds like it would be tough. Very, very tough. Yes. I, even in spring, I got, well, one pass, I got fully hailed on for about, an hour constantly uh, on the Cape Wrath. And another one, I woke up in the morning, found everything covered in snow, and that was April, completely covered in one of the lower areas. 
So the weather in Scotland is as predictable all the time. Most, place, most places you can get clear three days. In Scotland, you can get clear three hours. Mm. And then no one knows. Nice. Because the way the winds come from the 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 ocean and, and they come from you get um northern frigid winds coming in and the way they combine specifically on the scottish highlands it creates complete random weather patterns so you can get everything in a day i have experienced four seasons four full seasons in a day in scotland i don't doubt it i don't doubt it you know a lot of places <laughs> that have more kind of extreme variations in climate can do that to you if i had that same experience at altitude in colorado um Yes. But when you're closer to the water, to the ocean, it seems like for some reason that that can trigger more extreme changes as well. You know, Iceland is mm-hmm. known for that too. It's it's just uh, that northern Atlantic kind of a of a climate. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Scotland definitely gets it. Even though it's not a cold environment, it's it's quite a, quite temperatures are quite mild most of the time. But that those changes are so surprising and extreme. That's what constantly throw, throws you off. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado. Or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bissell Bark Bath. Bathing your dog is messy, and it trashes your house. Groomers are expensive, and in the wintertime especially, you can't clean a dog outside. It's just too cold. Well, the Bissell Bark Bath has solved all these problems. You have a spray nozzle that sprays a solution under the fur on the skin, and then you have a suction that lifts that dirty, wet solution out of your dog's fur. You can clean your dog anywhere in the house without making a mess. It only uses 48 ounces of water. It's a great, convenient way to give your dog a nice cleaning indoors. For more information or to buy your bark bath, go to Bissell.com forward slash adventure sports. That is B-I-S-S-E-L-L dot com slash adventure sports. Use adventure sports for the coupon code and they will send you two free no rinse shampoo bottles as well. Well, let's talk about the landscape there a little bit. I know that people have seen pictures of the Scottish Highlands, and I think it's primarily in the fall, but you see the the rust-colored undergrowth and the steep hillsides, and maybe there's a a fjord down below with water, and it's just beautiful. But what was it like when you were actually hiking through an expanse of this? It's exactly like that, but for 200 miles. (laughs) Uh, it, It is as beautiful as it sounds, and those pictures... They don't even do justice to realize how beautiful it is because you get it 360 degrees. It's just always around you. Mm. It can become boring at times, especially if you go through 10-mile stretch of 
this wet bog that it's all brown and clay and water and you just say oh, i just i just want to stand on something dry for 10 minutes but it it stays this beauty and when you go to the top of a pass and you saw and you see the the shores of the loch just below you and if you hit it time with right with the timing and you get the sunset it's just it's stunning because all those colors are glowing and I, I always try to finish my days with going down a pass towards the loch because just the views are amazing and it's worth it to get it just right with the with the sunset. Oh, it sounds delightful. Refreshing too. Yes, yes. So even when you're soaking cold, it's still, the views are worth it unless you get a whiteout, which does happen sometimes. Some of my favorite climbs have been in whiteout though. Because then instead of the, the big views, you're looking at the little ones. And somehow it, it just kind of draws you in to experience what's right at hand. Yes, yes. And, and you get, and, and because it's such a wet environment, you get a lot of small growth. Uh, there, there are not many trees. I think they're now trying to reforest part of, of Scotland. But the Scottish Highlands are, are pretty much all flat and barely any trees. And you see all this life such tiny environments of moss and and specific kind of ferns that I only saw in in Scotland, but they share the same characteristics as you'll see in southern New Zealand or Patagonia. A lot of those similar environments were very moist and cold, and it's really interesting. And and you will get views in a white cloud just as much. Boy, there are so many directions that we could take our discussion right now, and I, I have a million questions, but I want to touch just a little bit on what you said about the adventure race, that you decided to try to do it on your own, and you were going to try to do it in eight days, and it didn't work, but now you have something to pursue. So first of all, what kind of an effort, what kind of distances are involved to complete this Cape Wrath Trail in eight days? Um... Well, when I was planning my days, they were about um, 40 kilometers a day, so 25-mile days, and that's carrying all my food for eight days. I think my pack started at about 33 pounds, something like that. Um, and I've personally, I've not done it right in the way I've planned the route. I've overloaded the first few days so the first two days i've covered almost 90 miles mm. and yes which i've managed to do but the 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 relentless experience was too much and i probably should have broken it into shorter first days and increased the distance as as days progress because you need to acclimatize to it your body needs to kind of fall into the rhythms of the constant hike and the the temptation to try and do as much as possible as possible when you're fresh is just too big and that was my uh part of my uh my failure was inability to to assess that and give myself time to adjust to the to the life on the trail you mentioned that this is really a route not a trail so do you have to do a lot of your own um, navigation. You try to trying to figure out which direction you're supposed to head next. Yes, that happens actually quite a lot. Probably at least once a day, there will be a stretch, anything between a mile to five miles that you need to navigate. 
Um, most of the time, it's quite simple navigation. It's not very hard. But again, because it's Scotland and the weather can be so fickle, you don't know what kind of conditions you need to deal with. So you will, you might actually find yourself navigating five miles through a whiteout. And this is where the the challenges for a lot of hikers who try and do that specific route is the fact that your navigation skills might not be tested all the time, but in a few times that it, they will be, they'll be truly tested. They're not just trying to find the next peak, but trying to figure out how you're not falling into a stream in a whiteout, trying to find the next pass through a bog. And <laughs> it's hard, but it's very satisfying when you do succeed. <laughs> you know, when you first mentioned how this was had become a passion of yours, that it really was something that you were enchanted by, now I'm beginning to see why. The challenge of it just sounds enormous, and it, but it sounds delightful at the same time. Yes, it, it is. It's Because it's so demanding in non-intuitive ways. I mean, when I'm thinking about climbing some of the mountains in the U.S., you can understand the challenge. When you look at a trail or a route like the Cape Wrath, you don't really see where the challenge is. It's not that high. It's not that technical. It's not that remote. The weather is not that extreme. But when you're there and all those not that extreme situations come together, they make for a very interesting and unpredictable experience. And every time it's something different. <laughs> that sounds so, really fun. So uh, yeah. let's rewind just a little bit. I know a lot of the listeners are saying, did he just say he did 45 miles a day for two days? And, and <laughs> <laughs> so you are fit, obviously, to attempt things like this. But what what do you think a base fitness level would be required for people that just wanted to kind of take their time and enjoy the experience? Um, any hiker can do can do that as long as you good with the navigation navigation you are willing to accept the fact that you will be wet most of the trip you're just fine you can do five ten miles i've met more than enough hikers that have done this trail over two weeks three weeks you can do because you are relatively close to villages there are hostels there are hotels along the route that you can encounter um Scotland has a wonderful system. It's called uh, Bothies. They are old farmhouses that have been donated to the public, and they're open for everyone to use. So most of the time, it's just a, a, a stone structure with some wooden platforms, maybe a fireplace, and everyone can just spend the night there. As long as there's room and everyone's behaving nicely, you can just spend the night there. Nice. And so... Yes, that, that was a lifesaver for me, just for the sake of getting out of your wet gear and try and get it dry. And sometimes there's enough dry wood to try and make a fire and warm up. So it can be quite a leisured hike, but as a parent for two young kids, I kind of gave myself very short time frames to do my adventures, probably why I ended up doing things so compressed and fast all the time. Till this day, that's how I hike. But you can do that in more than comfortable pace. Well, let's back out on, again to kind of the, the, <laughs> the overview level. Why do this in the first mm-hmm. place? Why do you hike? Why do you backpack? Why do you go out on these adventures? Oh, personally, um, I think at this point, it's 
for me, it's a need at this point. Um, I've started because it was interesting. And my wife claims that I have some normal Israeli PTSD and it helps me to deal with it as well. <laughs> so I get some... Yes, it's. It, I think everyone who lives in a country that's a bit more combative, you you get experiences in the UK. In Israel, there's not really a thing PTSD. It's because everyone suffers it, suffers right. from it. So when I when I feel very stressed and and it feels that the business and home and the kids and life becomes overbearing, I'll go hiking or preferably backpack for one night. And I'll feel about a million times better. So that's why I hike. And by now, I really enjoy the physical challenge that comes with it. Um, I got injured in the army. I've ruined both my knees. And I was told I'll never run. And I need to be careful with the distances I do and things like that. And I now run regularly. And I just found a way to make it work. And I think it's one of those challenge when you, challenges when you're being told you can't do something. You have to figure out a way to do it. Or at least that's how it is for me. So there's a lot of that challenge that comes into it. Oh, I've covered another day. I've, I've reached another peak. I went down this mountain without trying, almost passing out from the pain in the knees. So it's all those things are constant challenges for me. You know, I totally get that. I, I Everything that you said there, the challenge of it, as well as a way to uh, to get away from everything and unwind to reset yourself emotionally and spiritually, you know, it all makes sense. Those are the same reasons that I like to get out. And I, I do 14ers for the challenge of it. And I do backpacking for the, for the unwind that I need to unplug. You know what I mean? I, I totally get yes. it. And I think it's beautiful therapy. It really works. Mm-hmm. And it's probably the cheapest therapy I know besides buying constant gear. Otherwise it's probably the best cheapest therapy I've ever met. <laughs> That's fantastic. So on this uh, Cape Wrath Trail, so you said, now I've got something in out there that I still have to try to do. So you are planning on going back to try to do the eight-day trip? Yes, yes. It's still it's still in my on my must-do list, but now I live in the States. So going to the, to the UK to do that trail, it's a bit more complicated logistically and, and cost-wise than just taking the train up to Scotland. Um, and also now I have a business and two kids and... So the demands are much, much more extreme. But I'm hoping to be able to do that in fall of next year, if everything goes okay. Nice. So closer to home, closer to Portland, what kind of adventures do you target there? Well, I, I have, I, I hike, I try and hike at least once a month for going on a, on an overnight trip. Again, for my mental state and to keep everyone balanced in the house. Um. And for a very long time, I've been crisscrossing all of the Columbia River Gorge when we just arrived here. But now after the Eagle Creek fire, most of it is closed. So I've been exploring further and further away. I have the Timberline Lodge Trail, which is a 43 miles uh, trail around the peak of Mount Hood on my to-do list for this summer. Hoping to do that over a nice weekend. And uh, the Wonderland Trail, which is just on across across the river for on in Washington. And for next year, I'm hoping to take my five year old growing adventurer to do the um, Oregon section of the PCT. Wonderful. You know, 
you you have a whole new world ahead of you as your children get old enough to go on these hikes with you. It is so much fun to to share your passions with your kids, and I applaud you for looking forward to that. It's going to be it's going to be different, right? You're going to have to go at their pace instead of <laughs> oh, yours. I know, <laughs> but it's such I a know. delightful well, I've, experience. I've taken, I've taken my kids. I taken my daughter hiking, backpacking the first time when she was my, eight nine eight eight months old. So I know the feeling. We just came <laughs> her. I took her backpacking in the Solomon River. Just we came back yesterday. We went for an overnight. The first time she cowboy camped, so uh, that was uh, an interesting experience to go to fall asleep looking at the stars. But oh, yeah. she done it. That's she fantastic. loved it. Fantastic. Yes, good for you. I I definitely know the feeling that passing it on to the kids is creating a whole new aspect of being outdoors. Check out bikeparts.com for all your cycling gear. They have a wide selection of over 60,000 bike parts and accessories. You can find everything you need, including tires, chains, tools, frame bags, cycling apparel, and even complete bicycles. They've got established brands like Shimano, SRAM, and Campagnolo, as well as the latest and greatest products from brands like Wolftooth, Physic, Zip, and Raceface. Need suggestions or have a question about what fits your bike? Their knowledgeable staff will answer any questions and get you rolling as quickly as possible. If you're in the great state of Colorado, stop by their full-service bike shop, Peak Cycles, in downtown Golden. Check out bikeparts.com. Spring is here and camping season is upon us. Visit our site at 180tac.com for your next camp stove. The 180 stove and smaller 180 flame are combustible fuel stoves, which are designed to burn the fuel that nature provides you at your campsite. There's no need to lug heavy and bulky fuel canisters along with you on the trail. The 180 Flame and 180 Stove are built in America and have no moving parts to fail you in the field. Check them out at www.180tack.com. Your purchase helps support the Adventure Sports Podcast. Well, Gilad, I want to I talk about your company a little bit because you have some neat products that people need to know about. But before we do, I, I'm going to leave that teaser there. Before we do, share with us a story that was formative or life-impacting from any one of these hikes, from the Andes, from the Scottish Highlands, from something you did in Oregon. Do you have a story for us oh. of something that was just like, wow, that, that was amazing? Um, i trying to think about a specific um, one. I'd say probably, um, so there's, there's one section that I really like for the Cape Roth, that the Cape Roth Trail, that leaves just around you pass a town called um um shell bridge it's kind of a coastal on the on the on a on the coast of a coastal loch so it's a loch that spills into the ocean it's quite an interesting concept so a salted loch and it's a very relaxed small town it's almost like a coastal town but in the scottish islands which is kind of a, a, an odd combination and I left that town um, after calling my wife, checking how things are going at home. She's at home with her daughter and a three-month-old son. And I'm, I'm standing there just next to a campsite on the way to continue my eight days hike. I'm on day, starting day three. And I call home, and my wife answers, and she breaks down into tears. Mm. She's exhausted. The kids are killing her, and my daughter just developed some kind of a cold, a nasty cold. And 
I knew that my trip was end. It was it was it was at its end point at that coastal town. But there's just absolutely no way of leaving, of of getting on my way home from that town. There's just there are no buses, no trains, nothing. But I knew that if I walk an extra day and a half, I can make it back home much quicker. It's one of those things about Scotland that the only way to get out is by getting to a more remote place. <laughs> okay. So I remember okay. standing there and it's sunny and pleasant and I just spent a night at at a bothy, so I was relatively dry and I'm saying, oh, this is the best trip ever and now I'm going to close it down and just it's time to, to pack and go back home. And I felt terrible, but not going to disappoint my wife. So I accepted it and said, okay, I'm going to walk one more day to actually be able to get out and I'll come home. And I start walking and all of a sudden, all the pressure that I had from trying to finish this hike in eight days was gone. And by knowing that I'm going to finish the trail at the next day really allowed me to enjoy that day. And I had an amazing hiking day. One of those days that you just, everything looks amazing. The, the rocks are shining and it was just such a lovely day of hiking until I got to the last pass and I got gale force winds to my face and hail. And I've cursed that day, but I spent a whole day really enjoying my hike just by knowing that I'm not going to continue hiking. Isn't that funny? The change of perspective. Yes. I know it's not a hiking tale, but it's, it's how you look at the hike that made it so much more enjoyable. I've had those experiences too, backpacking and uh, struggling and fighting for some goal and then finally realizing that where you are right then and there is amazing. All you have to do is stop mm -hmm. and enjoy where you are instead of thinking past where you are. It's, it's something to do with being present. Yes, yes. And it was, it was really probably the highlight of my, my hike to just enjoy that day. You know, it's a goal of mine every trip to get to that mindset, to get to that point where you can just be where you are and kind of, um, I guess, you you know, you, you just have to wave the, the white flag and say, I surrender. <laughs> you know, I'm just yes. here to experience this. Yes, mm. exactly. And it was it was a really liberating. And I try and make sure that every time that I go hiking since then, I also enjoy the day. Not just where I'm going to camp and not just on the way back, but also when I'm there. I think that's the most important thing you can experience when you actually go hiking regularly. Well, with the distances that you cover, that's probably, uh, it's probably harder, actually. Some people are covering short distances so they can be distracted by everything around them and just kind of, uh, you know, lollygag around and finish their day at whatever rate, mm -hmm. you know. But when you're trying to cover the distances that you're doing, then it must take a lot of discipline to be present where you are while you're still reaching for a, a substantial goal like that. It's, it's very, I, it is very challenging, but I found that it's almost meditative because you, you switch on the body machine to walk and your body's just walking and it allows your mind and your eyes to just be everywhere. And you, I, I know that every time my wife walks, hikes with me, she gets really annoyed because I walk fast and I still manage to enjoy everything. And I'll point stuff all the time and tell my my kids, oh, did you see that deer? And have you noticed that tree, which is a bit crooked and things like that? And she just doesn't understand. 
how I'm walking so fast and also see everything. Right. The way you train yourself. Sure. Everyone has his or her own unique hiking style. And there's something that's also fun about this. When a person goes out into wilderness and finds a hiking style that works for them, then they also find gear problems. So we're coming back to your company here. <laughs> but we, we discover yes. things that don't work for us, that don't work for that approach to being in the woods. Yes. Right. And you have a couple mm-hmm. of products that were made specifically to meet needs that you found. And so I want to hear about them because other people that are listening right now probably have similar needs. And so share with us what you discovered. So probably the the good starting point is the fact that I broke another pair of poles in Scotland. And I was trying to get out of working in yet another company and my wife said, you know, if you're so smart and you think you know how to make good poles, just go and make them. So I did. I went to a factory in China and I said, okay, can you make me those poles? And they kind of sent me a few ideas and I said, no, that's not good enough. Let's change a million and five things about them. And I started designing poles that I wanted them to be as small as I can make them while being functional and very fast to, to deploy and collapse because... When you hike so quickly, many times the pause can even slow you down. So when you're in a straight stretch, just as when you're running, it's, you, you fall into a very comfortable rhythm if the trail is easy. So you don't actually want the pause because they might slow you down. So I want something I can take out quickly and, and, and deploy and use quickly and then collapse them quickly when I need to do something else. And I had the Black Diamond Z pause back that I broke. And the idea of spending another $200 in buying another pair of poles was too too harsh. So I went up and made those poles and I've managed to make them 14 and a half inches long when they closed. And I know it's, it's a very odd number to go for, but it's exactly the length of most uh, shoulder straps, shoulder uh, straps on backpacks. Okay. So if you have those tiny loops usually for hydration tubes and things like that, you can actually fit the poles into those. So my poles don't sit in the side pocket of my backpack. They sit on my shoulder straps. So they're handy. You can grab them and put them away easily without even taking your pack off. Exactly. I'm not taking my pack off. They're super fast to take, and I can only get one at a time if I need. And by now, it takes me about two seconds to deploy them, even less if I'm really paying attention to what I'm doing. So I wanted something so intuitive and so easy, and that's what I've made. And so I've, I've been making the poles for a while, and about a year ago, my father-in-law came to me and said, ah, oh, why do all the soya bags always explode on me? And then I've realized all my soya bags also break on me, and the, kind of the collapsible bottles, they're all quite stiff. They're all made from nylon. And they have only this small opening that takes edges to fill. And it all goes back to this kind of fuff that you need to deal with in camp and when you try and filter water or anything like that. So I made a water container called a Vecto. It has a wide opening on one side and a simple screw neck on the other. And the whole bladder is made from TPU. So it's a bit stronger and softer. It has a bit of a plasticky smell, but when you use it as a dirty water bladder, it doesn't really matter. And it just, it takes two seconds to fill. You screw on your filter, whether it's a 
HydroBlue or LifeStraw or Soy or something like that. Filter your order, put it away. The whole thing's done in a minute. Nice. And that's it. I've just it, it was just those things that why do I need to deal with those all the time? I mean, I my enjoyment in the trail is not sitting here and filtering water. This is just a function. I've made those two things, and now um, and and I've been really enjoying the process. I'm not an engineer personally, so I don't have an engineering mindset that goes into it. I'm just a user. Just I I knew which function I want. And I go to the factory and say, make those functions to me. And uh, I've reached the point that those factories, those Chinese big Chinese factories, just had enough of my annoying demands and requests all the time. So. I'm now moving everything to the U.S. to smaller factories that are very excited to play with things that they're not used to. Um, so it, it's been an interesting experience having that backpacking gear list that I always wanted to make, but no one did. So that's right. what I'm doing. I love it. And uh, <laughs> you were sending me one of your your water bladders, the Vecto. Mm-hmm. And I'll uh, I'll bring it up on a future show. Tell people what I think of it because I want to try it out. But I didn't get it before this interview, so I, I haven't experienced it mm-hmm. yet. But I love the concept of something that's simple, hardy, that's going to that stick together, and that's quick and easy mm-hmm. to use. And it, that's the theme that I see with the poles and with the water bag is everything has to be super convenient and quick. Yes, and and simple. I think a lot of the outdoor gear as the industry kind of matures becomes really complicated. It's it's complicated to to take care of, to fix. For me, I always think about it kind of the, the industry matured into the point that everyone is driving a one of those fancy Land Rovers <laughs> instead of those old beat up hardy defenders. And right. when I go hiking I need defenders. I don't need a sport discovery. I I need something that I can bash and then know how to fix any part of it if i need to because i can see it yeah exactly and it's just a lot of a lot of the frustration that i have with all of the gear that i have it's just you can't fix it you're out on the trail something breaks and it's the mechanism is so complicated that there's no way to start all right well gilad what's the name of your company and how can people get more information about your stuff um the company is knock outdoors uh c-n-o-c knock uh, hill in Gaelic, hill or mountain. Again, my obsession with uh, the Cape Wrath keeps on popping everywhere. Uh, Knock Outdoors, uh, the company company site is probably the best place for information, knockoutdoors.com. And I'm trying to, to make new stuff all the time. So if anyone has this crazy idea that no other company is willing to make, just shoot me an email at contact at knockoutdoors.com and see if I can make it. My mindset when it comes to this company. You know, I thought it was funny before we hit record, you mentioned Andy Liebner, uh, who from United States Ski Poles, right? And Mm -hmm. Andy and you are working together now to get the, your hiking poles manufactured, you know, on, on U.S. soil here. So what a fun coincidence. Yes. Yes, it was, it was, I was listening to the episode the other day and it's kind of, oh, I know that voice. It's Andy. What is he doing on the podcast? And <laughs> we, we've been really enjoying working together because he also has the same mindset of keeping things simple and robust. And, and he, comes, he comes from such a different perspective when it comes to the same, to a very similar product. So it made the whole interaction very interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. I really liked his mindset about how to make a product correct. And of course, he's using uh, cross-country ski poles, essentially, is what he's manufacturing and, and doing the best yeah. that can be done from the sound of things. But yours are more exactly. oriented toward hiking. I think about a lot of ultra runners and through hikers. They would benefit from your poles. Yes, yes. Uh, the poles have become very popular in the last probably six months in the, the through hiking community. And, and they're still not as simple as I would like them to be because some parts you just can't fix. They, they bonded together and things like that. So I think by moving things to a smaller factory, it might increase the price of them, but it means that everything can actually be fixed. And Andy comes with the same mindset. And he his expertise is actually the, the carbon fiber itself, the, the rod, the shafts. Right. And I bring the other parts. So he was interested in making a more interesting uh, flick lock clasp to lock the poles to make an adjustable one. And I was looking for someone to make shafts for the parts that I already designed. So it was just an interesting collaboration that works really good, really well for both of us. So I, I had a question specifically about that, mm -hmm. so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, do your poles just telescope down to size and then they come back out, and then how do they lock? Is it the quarter twist of the pole that locks it, or is there another mechanism? It's another mechanism. It's a, it's a Z-pole style with a lock button, and it also has an adjustable shaft with a flick lock. Okay. So it's a combination of, of things. So you can have... So I found that the Z-style poles, most of them come with just a single size, and that really limits what you can do, especially if you use it for shelter, and which is what I use. I use tarps when I do use uh, a shelter. So I want an adjustable length pole, but I want the ease of having that first, that quick lock system like the Z-pole. And so it's a combination of two systems that allow it to be both fast locking and adjustable in length. Okay. Well, the poles that I've tried that have the the mechanism where you twist the two pieces of the pole to get it to lock, they either get stuck mm -hmm. or they don't hold. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, <laughs> that's always that's, been my I think experience. All of us, how we started, it's it's how 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 the poles that I well, the first pair of poles that I had. That's that's the one the kind of I had. But yes, the internal telescopic system just does not work over time. Okay, so you've solved that problem, and I guess that's the main point I wanted to get to is that that you've found a way to get past all of that. So now you have something that deploys very quickly, and it sounds like it's nearly infinitely adjustable to exactly the length you want. Yes, yes. So you still are limited to some some extent by the size of the pole, but so the ones that we have now run from. 41 inches to 53, so 42 inches to 53 inches. So you get a good 10, 11 inches of, of adjustability. Nice. So even if you want to share the poles, I know that sometimes my wife will take my poles, and by having one size, it's very limiting. So I wanted something that still allows you to either share or test it with other things. Well, I don't want to belabor the point, but I have to ask about this a little <sighs> bit more. Some people gave up on poles. Sure. Because of what you said, they get to the easier part of the trail that's pretty straight. And they're like, I'm just carrying this dead yeah. weight around. And then other people have said, no, the poles save the knees. You absolutely have to have them for yeah. these long distances. And they really help to stabilize you. I know that you're using the poles, but what do you think the advantages are? Um, well, I can, I can pull out the research. There is actually research that shows it reduces about 5% of pressure. But 
more than anything, I think it forces people into a better gate. And that means that they use their legs and feet better and reduces the pressure on the joints. For me, it's a necessity. I have screwed up knees. The only way to go down a hill properly is to actually use poles. Um, and I've been using poles for probably about 12 years now. So nice. I can't imagine hiking without them. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's a mistake to it until you have a problem with your knees to use poles. Because you will have knee problems. If you hike regularly or you do any kind of more aggressive sport regularly, you will ruin your knees at some point. It's just a matter of physics. Our body is not, it's very rarely meant to work that way for such a prolonged time. So instead of waiting until you have a problem to start using trekking poles, I always recommend just use them from the beginning and reduce the pressure. That's a good on idea. On the other hand, and, and there's a second aspect to it, which is falling. Uh, that happens a lot. I mean, if you hike a long day, by the time you reach the evening, you're almost always tired. You never walk properly. You miss things regularly. So having an extra extra contact points reduces chances of falling. And it's almost like a, a an airbag in the way I look at it. You have an airbag in the car, and you want that if something happens, it will do the job to keep you safe. And that's what the pole is doing. If you got stuck or you got a wrong angle or something like that, you want to be able to use your poles and make sure they stop you from falling or twisting something. I have so many customers who say, that, oh, I snapped a pair of poles, but at least I haven't fallen down a crevice. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of people get upset from breaking a pair of poles, but that pair of poles makes sure you don't sit in a hospital for five days. So right. it's just a fall. It's meant to do exactly that, keep you safe on the, on the trail. Very cool. Very cool. Well, the name of the company, again, is Canock Outdoors, and that's C-N-O-C, canockoutdoors.com. Yes. Outdoors.com. Mm-hmm. And Gilad Nachmani, thank you so much for being on the ah. Adventure Sports Podcast. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. And I love what you're doing out there. Keep doing it. And I know that you blog on this stuff, too. So if people want to see some pictures and and read more about it, is Canock uh, Outdoors the best place to go? Um, I actually have my own blog. It's It's been a bit quiet in the last two, it's in the last year, just because I was quite busy. But uh, outdoorsfather.com is when I where I write about my true opinions and my uh, adventures. Okay. This way. Outdoorsfather.com. Very cool. Well, Gilad, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. And all of you listeners out there, I say it every time, but man, it's what it's all about. There are so many advantages to adventure sports. It's not just about having fun. It's about being healthy. It's about lifestyle. It's about making memories. And it's about family time and so many other advantages I could go on for hours, and I won't. But until the next show, make sure that whatever you do, find a way to get out there and have some fun. Thanks for listening into today's episode with Gilak Nakmani. If you heard Nancy Pfeiffer on episode 322, you heard her story of the 1,800-mile solo horseback trip across Patagonia. We told you we would let you know when that book is out, and her book has finally released. So you can find Riding into the Heart of Patagonia on Amazon or your local bookstore. If you haven't heard her episode, go back to episode 322 and check it out. Thanks for listening, guys, and get out there and have some fun.